Welcome to Embedded Edge with Knitting, a podcast that brings to life the stories behind today's embedded systems, technologies, and products. It's the show where you'll hear from both engineers and executives on some of the most topical news and most pressing challenges in the world of embedded system design. Here's your host, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded.com, Nitin Dahad. Hello, welcome to this edition of Embedded Edge with Nitin. In this episode, we talk about ambient IoT, we talk about the planned new technology roadmap for NFC, and we talk about integrating optical interconnect into silicon. We address these through interviews with Steve Statler of WillIOT, who explains that the Internet of Things will not proliferate until we eliminate the Internet of Expensive Things. The solution is an open, battery-free IoT pixel technology based on ARM processors and a clever use of energy harvesting from radio. Then we talk to Mike McCammon, Executive Director of the NFC Forum, who explains the technology roadmap for NFC, which includes increasing the power and range of NFC. And finally, we talked to Adam Carter, CEO of OpenLight on its open silicon photonics platform with integrated lasers and addressing the challenge of delivering the performance needed in high performance computing for AI, as well as other applications. Let's get straight to the first interview with Steve Statler of WillIOT. After that, you'll hear from Mike McCannum of the NFC Forum, and finally from Adam Carter of OpenLight. I'm talking to Steve Statler, uh, who's with William. Steve, hello. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us on the podcast, Nitin. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you think are the reason why uh, IoT is is still sort of stuck uh, and not sort of getting the, the blanket coverage that it should have been doing so far in many, many of the industries that have been promised the benefits of IoT. Yeah, I think the original vision for the Internet of Things, which was uh, um, uh, happened about 20 years ago at the birth of RFID was that this would be the internet of everything. And really, it's become the internet of expensive things, largely, I, I believe, because of cost. Uh, and um, the IoT industry is bifurcated into two streams. There's the um, stream where you have low-cost tags with high-cost readers, or you have, you know, uh, essentially lo- lower cost networks, cellular networks or LP1 networks, but the uh, the sensors, the tracking node is is expensive. And in the case of RFID, yeah, the tags are down to small numbers of pennies, but the handheld readers are still hundreds, very often, uh, you know, one or two thousand dollars for a handheld reader, and then you need a person to wave it around. Uh, and and really, the original vision was broad blanket coverage with fixed readers, but those are tens of thousands. And, and, you know, when Marks and Spencer started doing trials, it looked like it was going to be millions of dollars to blanket an entire store. So no retailer has really pulled the trigger on blanket coverage of stores. And even in distribution centers, the readers that go around the dot doors, which can be two or 300 dot doors in a big distribution center in uh, the country where I live here in the States, that they're just not putting the automatic readers in there. So you're still, it's still kind of manual. Uh, and then on the flip side, you have 
IoT uh, temperature sensors, which are tens of dollars, temperature loggers that require manual costs. So too much manual labor, too much hardware costs. And that's why we think ambient IoT, which we are proud to be part of that ecosystem, uh, offers the potential to break that deadlock with low-cost tags, low-cost infrastructure. And uh, because that infrastructure can be pervasive everywhere, all the time, all at once, then you can also eliminate the labor costs that are expensive, but also mean that you end up only with snapshots of the assets that uh, are being tracked. <laughs> that's, that's the situation from our perspective. Okay. I mean, we'll come to you know, less expensive in a minute, but let's talk about, you talked about ambient IoT. So you're doing energy harvesting, you've got a you know, standard sort of uh, technology. So just tell me a little bit about how that technology works. So uh, ambient IoT is, you know, ambient uh, surrounds us everywhere. Uh, and so the concept is to have very, very low cost, very small uh, tags, smart tags, uh, and then use the radio infrastructure that's everywhere. If you could see radio waves and you looked around wherever you are at the moment, you'd see a rainbow of color because we've got phones and ear pods and uh, our monitors have got radios and laptops and appliances and smart speakers. They're just everywhere. So the concept of ambient IoT is introducing standards uh, so that all of that infrastructure, which is sunk cost, uh, is free, can read these smart tags. And in our case, Williot has developed what we call IoT pixels, which are postage stamp size stickers that have tiny chips in with ARM processors and they're battery free. So they get the energy by doing the hardest thing that you can do in energy harvesting, which is harvesting the weakest source of energy, which is radio waves. So it's hard to do, but we've figured out how to do it. And so we power these little um, mobile compute devices by harvesting the energy from Bluetooth devices and other sub gigahertz radios. And, Today, we uh, supplement the radio waves that are genuinely ambient with um, uh, very low-cost Bluetooth uh, sub-gigahertz readers that cost uh, small tens of dollars. So you can get a, a one of our uh, ambient IoT uh, bridges or gateway devices for um, much less than $50. And so that allows you to uh, supplement the coverage that... Uh, 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 has some gaps until some of the standards that we're working on uh, get put into place so that, that will turn every radio device into an ambient IoT reader. So just just touch on the standards, because I think you, you are working with that and you talked about IEEE 802.11. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the... Yeah, so uh, at least three major standards efforts around ambient IoT that we're actively contributing to. One is with the IEEE, uh, and the idea is to make ambient IoT part of the Wi-Fi standard. So uh, it's it's not done yet. So you know, no one can truly predict exactly when it's going to happen, what's going to happen. But it's looking pretty good that this will be have its own two-letter 802.11. Currently, the project is called 802.11 AMP, and mm -hmm. and there's some very large companies other than Williop contributing to this. And then there's kind of a, a sister complementary, some might say competing effort in 3GPP. Uh, the, the, those are the folks that define 
the, the G's, uh, 5G, 5G advanced, and 6G. Mm. And it looks very likely that ambient IoT will be part of release 19, which will be marketed as 5G advanced. So, you know, already our tags can be read by phones uh, and uh, uh, can be read by Wi-Fi access points. But this standardization will open this up to many, many vendors and it will improve the performance of those devices. Um, And then lastly, you know, we use Bluetooth today. And so, you know, we're optimistic uh, that the Bluetooth SIG will uh, not lose its lead and will be keen to um, do more to build on the support already in the standard. There's something which I I thought was very interesting and how you talked about your nanowatt wave computing, and that's a, a technique you use to yes. ensure that you know you can sort of do the processing and send the yes. data without needing a, a lot of uh, energy. Yes. So uh, I mean, we're proud that we can capture the energy from very weak uh, sources, very weak radio signals, which is an achievement. But once you've done that, you still don't have very much energy. So how do you run a MCU, a mobile compute unit, a tiny compute device on not very much energy? And so what we do do is break up the problem into bite-sized chunks. And so we've redesigned this uh, Bluetooth IoT Pixel processor. uh, And um, it works by harvesting the energy from uh, a set of radio waves. We gradually fill up a capacitor that's on the chip. And then once we have enough energy, we start to do what other Bluetooth tags and Bluetooth beacons would do all at once in a monolithic operation. So we get a wave of energy, we'll boot up the the chip. We get another wave of energy, we'll calibrate the radios. Another wave of energy comes in, we'll do some computing. Another wave of energy is we'll do some encryption. And then another wave of energy comes in and we'll broadcast the payload. Uh, And that allows us to sort of sit at this uh, very meager amount of energy that's coming in. And uh, every time uh, a wave is executed, we save the results into uh, areas on our chips registered called retention memory, so that if the energy disappears, you don't have to start from the beginning again. So that's part of the technology that we're licensing um, as part of our effort to promote and make available this technology. So if someone wants to get into the business of making ambient IoT tags, we'll help them do it and we'll help them do it for free uh, because we, uh, our business model is to be a, a data pipe, uh, a data platform, and we take the tsunami of data that all of the, this generates and turn it into actionable, useful triggers that can be used to run supply chains and uh, do uh, medical regimen adherence and uh, auto-replenishment of grocery containers and tracking of assets and all the other things that you can do when you connect every single ordinary thing to the internet. So that's the key thing, which I think uh, maybe isn't very clear from that, is you are, the thing you said about the barriers to IoT becoming more widespread is is the cost of of various things. And you're actually uh, licensing all this technology for free to uh, enable that infrastructure to people who want to make it. But then yeah. your your business model is is basically software as a service. Exactly, and you know whilst we wait for the standards to be fully ratified and agreed, then we publish the firmware that you can use to make an ambient IoT device on GitHub. So anyone can go onto GitHub, download the firmware, and start making ambient IoT gateways and bridges. Um, and you know as the standards evolve, we're 
committed to um, having the first support for you know the pre-standard and uh, standardized support. And we're a very small company, and we're working with some of the largest technology companies in the world. You know, think about all the people that have tracking devices and make smartphones and telco infrastructure and Wi-Fi infrastructure. They're all involved in these standards, but we, I think, punch above our very small weight because we actually have the technology working. We're scaling these ambient IoT tags to, uh, we'll make more than 100 million this year, and we aim to make um, well over a billion uh, next year, between one to 10 billion. Um, So ultimately, analysts say this market will be in the trillions, which will be several orders of magnitude bigger than the internet of things is now. If you if you're generous, you'd say the IoT devices are of the order of 50 billion. Uh, if you lump in every, you know, all of the phones and uh, other sensors together, uh, but this really can get into, um, you know, up to 10 trillion. It's an addressable market of uh, of 10 trillion units, according to analysts like ABI and the Bluetooth C. Massive numbers. Let's hope you get there. And uh, Steve, thank you very much. Well, thanks for shining a light and helping to spread the word, Nathan. I'm talking to Mike McCammon, our Executive Director of the NFC Forum. Mike, hello. Hello, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. The NFC Forum has um, uh, released its roadmap, and there's some interesting, well, there's five key points on there. I just wanted to, in the, in this conversation, talk a little bit about some of the key things from uh, sort of an embedded systems point of view, but also more broadly. I think uh, you've got five things on there, you know, uh, increased power for NFC wireless charging, number two, increased range, number three, multipurpose tap, number four, modernizing device-to-device communication, and also number five, expanding NFC's ability to share data formats needed for sustainability. Let's start with talking a little bit about uh, the, the range for NFC wireless charging. So um, NFC connections operate um, up to a range of two centimeters. Uh, the NFC forum, we actually test interoperability out to five millimeters. So this is the experience when you go to tap something, you know, you have to be very close. And by the way, when I talk in this distance, I'm talking in the Z axis. So mm. up to two centimeters, but five millimeters is what we test to. Um, and what the NFC forum is looking to do is expand that range. Um, and um, currently, the target is between four to five times the distance that currently exists today. Um, and we and we also are talking a lot about backwards compatibility as well. So, if you were to do the math, um, your your listeners can. But the idea would be is we'd be able to extend our range out to two centimeters or even further uh, when it comes to a interoperably tested uh, range, if you will. And this, by the way, would also be, we expect to not consume more power or anything else. So it really is designed to be backward compatible, but um, extend the range. And by the way, what's important about extended range is there's a lot of benefits to the embedded system. One is the fact that it makes the tap location to be less precise. So when I go to tap something, I don't have to be as close. It'll also work faster because you'll come into range as you're getting closer to the device and stay in range as you move away. So we expect user experience to be quite nice. And then when you embed NFC, this will give you a little bit more freedom in terms of the material you use and how close the antenna needs to be to the outside of the product. Uh, Because of course that creates interference. Um, And by having a greater range, you can use different materials. And and just going back uh, to the charging. So the, the one watt, I think you're going up to three watts, and that's very complimentary to, you know, sort of uh, existing Qi-based, uh, you know, the wireless uh, 
power consortium and what they're doing as well. Correct. Yeah, wireless power consortium um, power is from five watts and above. Uh, we've been sending it negotiated power up to one watt um, and the specifications about for about two years now. And what we're looking to do is extend that out to three watts. Again, negotiated power. And the idea is to kind of provide a nice complement to the Qi wireless standard so that when people are building products, they can pick whichever makes the most sense. One of the big benefits, of course, of NFC wireless charging is that uh, you can use that technology for other uses as well, for a data connection and also for payment, whereas Qi, of course, is just for charging. The other mm. big benefit, of course, is our antenna sizes are quite small. Um, a Qi, uh, a Qi uh, coil is actually quite large diameter-wise, as well as thickness. So we provide a lot of flexibility in these very, very small embedded devices where you want to not have a battery or use wireless charging. And there's so many products, but I guess you know you told me about a use case the the the, the wireless earbuds. Uh, that's a, yeah. a very good example where where this might be useful. Yeah, you know we were talking about earlier that when I, when someone told me to use this in earbuds, I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense because the use cases I already have today make a lot of sense. Um, mm. But then someone tried to explain to me it's it's not charging my wireless bud case; it's replacing the metal contacts between my earbuds and the case. So if you were to open up your case for your, if you have wireless headphones, you'll notice there's metal contacts in there. And the problem is that, of course, they, there's environmental issues. They corrode. They get dirty. Um, mm. Also, when you manufacture the product, you have to. It's really complicated to make sure everything all lines up and all that kind of stuff. And then on the earbuds, you've got metal on there as well, so you've got environmental. So if you were to be able to embed all of that and use NFC wireless charge, and you could replace all those metal surfaces and embed antennas in all these devices and still get the benefits of wireless charging without the complexity and the downside of using metal contacts. Now, before we go on to sort of uh, the people involved in developing all of this, just quickly tell me about uh, the other three, you know, the, the multipurpose tap and the device-to-device yeah, sure. device communication and the uh, data for sustainability. Yeah, so those are pretty, you know, the very quick version of this is multipurpose tap. The idea here is we're defining use cases that would allow people to do more th than one thing with the tap. The classic example is that when I go to pay, I'd be able to receive a receipt directly into my digital wallet, or I could use an infinity card, but use only one tap. And then the other one is around modernization to peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, most people don't know, NFC has a variety of different modes on a handset. One of them is reader-writer mode. This allows me to read data as well as write data using my handset. And there's an interesting, fairly disruptive trend right now around using uh, handsets as payment terminals. And what we're looking at doing is improving that user experience. And that's what that roadmap item is, because that's a peer-to-peer -peer, um, effort. When peer-to-peer -peer was initially defined, there was kind of a different set of use cases. So we need to modernize our specification for that. And the last one's around expanded data formats. And what we're looking at doing, every NFC device supports what's called NDEF, which is a record type that allows you to read data. We use it for like getting URL or connecting to an internet, those types of things. But we can also expand that to do other things. And one of the uh, initiatives we're keeping a very close eye on in the European Commission is around the digital product passport. This is an effort to basically uh, make everything you buy, um, starting with EV batteries next to apparel, and then after that, consumer electronics products, to have the information about the recyclability, the materials built into the product, can a user repair all that type of data and put it in the cloud, which is great. Um, but not everyone um, keeps the apparel tags. Not everyone likes having a QR code on the side of a device. And so we're looking at enhancing our specification so that mm. data could be stored not only in the cloud, but also stored on the device itself. And this would mean that every product that could be built with NFC already 
would have a way to have that data to be embedded in the product for the life of the product all the way to its end of life to actually improve uh, keeping those things out of the wrong places in terms of landfill, as well as allowing consumers to know where to recycle and repair their products. It's a really big opportunity, but that's much, much further out in terms of a rise and probably two to three years away. That's interesting, I mean, because there's already a lot of talk about um, digital identity for your know, connected products. And you know, yes, just imagine yes. combining all that information in one packet, uh, the secure element and, and that information. Exactly. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, so just a little bit about uh, before we finish. So who, who are the people involved in developing all of this um, and you're know, sort of going on this roadmap and especially what's coming up in the, the next uh, year or two? You know, the NFC Forum is a, you know, um, standards developments organization. So we are contribution led by our membership. Uh, we have uh, over 450 members around the right. world. Every okay. consumer brand you've ever heard of is probably a member here. Um, you know, starting all the way at Apple and going all the way to Zebra, you know, the handset, you know, and, and embedded system company. Um, chipset vendors, automotive companies, and this, basically all those types of players are here. So when it comes to, um, you know, basically improving the um, range, a lot of the work that's being done there is in our analog working group, along with the technical committee. Okay. Um, and those are kind of the bigger companies that are in our ecosystem. Uh, when it comes to sustainability, uh, I would say most of the participation is from Europe because those are the organizations that are kind of have that top of mind, whereas in America, that's not something that's kind of on their radar at this point. But we have good engagement across all those places, and we have a variety of working groups. Any company can become a member for free and join in a lot of these conversations, uh, at least in our special interest groups. And then for a small fee uh, and a paying membership level, they can participate along with Apple and Google and define these other requirements around how contactless will work going into the future. Yeah, let's just go back to uh, wireless charging then that range yeah. how well so when do we expect that to be sort of ratified is is that, is that the word yeah so yeah so normally yeah this the process normally takes i would say that when we say we're going to do something until you see consumer products takes about three years three because years, there's okay. obviously you know about half of that time is in the standards development effort and then the other half of that time is you know waiting for the hardware to land in the shops. So it takes quite a bit of time. It's so 12 to 18 months. Now, some okay. of these things may be much more fast-tracked because I've been told, I've not verified this, but I have been told that there may be some manufacturers when it comes to, for instance, increased range, um, and even for wireless charging, it may only be a firmware update. They may not have uh -huh. to uh, yes. change out their, swap out their radios and all that kind of stuff, but that's yet to be seen. Um, but of course, our our plan is to make it as just least disruptive as necessary um, mm. to move to the future. Um, so my expectation is that some of these features will be here sooner. Uh, wireless charging for one watt is already here. There's chips that you can buy today, and I understand there's already products in the market you can buy today that support that technology up to one watt, and the expectation is up to three watts. That specification will be done next year, so it'll probably be another year and a half or so after that. When it comes to the range effort, uh, that's still um, currently being researched. So my expectation is it won't be until the earliest you'd see is the end of 2024 would be the time frame you'd start to see those types of chipsets available um, mm. and commercial availability for uh, manufacturers. Well, Mike, thank you very much. Thank you, Nitin. Have a great rest of your day. Hello, I'm talking to Adam Carter, uh, CEO of OpenLight. Uh, Adam, hello, how are you? 
I'm good. I think that if you look at what's been happening in the optics industry over the last sort of decade, uh, particularly with the onset of uh, sort of hyperscale data centers, is uh, the volume of optics that has been required for those networks is, is, is very large. And of course, it's a very competitive space. However, what's happening in the in the last uh, couple of years and will grow in momentum as we go towards 2030 is that the volume is going to absolutely uh, increase immensely to support artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and what we see is that the ecosystem that's in place today that is is used to build the current pluggable modules that are deployed in data center networks isn't going to be sufficient to support that. And also from some of the features that are going to be needed as you grow in bandwidth and you go to very high density optical interconnects. What we're doing here at OpenLight is offering the opportunity who do not have access to silicon photonics and um, and and the ability to manufacture at scale, uh, we're offering a open platform that enables designers to design their own circuits. It the big differentiation is the fact that the active elements that are normally externally coupled into passive silicon photonics circuits are available to be included inside the silicon. So you can design uh, whether it be uh, gain blocks, uh, modulators of various types, and also uh, if you need some amplification, you can use semiconductor optical amplifiers, which help boost the signal. So this is a bit different than what is originally be, which is being offered in the industry today. It mainly because of the fact that uh, you don't have to externally couple the lasers, which causes you to do causes much more cost because you have to actively couple the laser into the waveguide and all the operational side of producing these these modules. Currently, you're saying the capacity isn't there. You're actually enabling is that optics to be in integrated into the silicon. Correct. And then you actually offer this to your customers to license, which they then work with themselves. And then you you put the active bits in through your own manufacturing. So tell me a little bit about you know, how you sort of offer this to your customers. Yeah. So what we do is we actually, um, through our foundry partner, which is Tower Semiconductor, we offer a PDK which mm. contains both the active and the uh, passive elements that you would need to, to build circuits. Uh, we actively put more components in as we develop them and prove them out. Uh, but today you can get uh, laser, laser uh, PDK elements, you can get uh, modulator EAM uh, components, and you can get SOA components uh, from that PDK. And what that enables you to do, there's two ways to do it. If you have a silicon photonics design team, they can uh, basically register to get access to that PDK and start designing and go straight into tower uh, mm -hmm. on an MPW shuttle run. Or we can do the design for you as well if you don't have a silicon photonics design team. And so we have a set of designers that will take your specifications, uh, your requirements, and then design a specific uh, circuit for you. Uh, we'll do the layout, 
uh, we will, if you want us to do the run itself uh, through the foundry, we'll do that, the engineering volume. And then we'll do the testing. And if there's a new active component, we'll also do the reliability uh, testing as well. The, the inherent nature of this, though, which really is important, is as you scale in the number of channels, the ability to uh, externally couple becomes harder. And so the real sweet spot for this technology is around very high density uh, optical interconnects, which absolutely is going to be needed for artificial intelligence. And because you're, you're coupling on the silicon through a taper into the waveguide, that gives you a better coupling efficiency than you would get by externally coupling a laser external to the silicon. And that means that you can actually drive the laser at lower uh, currents and voltages uh, mm. than you would normally, which then enables you to actually, at a, at a total system point of view, reduce the power consumption of the system. So from that perspective, that's another inherent, inherent advantage of this technology. And, and I think you, I remember you saying something like uh, getting up to 90% efficiency, coupling efficiency. How does that compare with what you can get at the moment with? Typically, as a rule of thumb, most people are looking at a coupling efficiency with an externally coupled laser of about 30 to 35%. Okay, so that's a significant improvement, which, as you said, then enables high yield and reliability, I guess. Uh, correct. And because it is buried in the silicon, you don't have to do anything like etched facets or facet coating and, and things like that, which can cause some reliability issues if you're not maintaining control of your processing. So because of that, this this thing is totally embedded in, in, in silicon and actually the end product looks like a silicon chip. So it uses right. all the silicon metallization, it uses all the passivations that is typically used in the silicon industry and obviously is highly reliable. Now, I think I also you talk about the, the PDK, you're not holding anything back. You're, whatever updates you get, the customer gets that. And that's a little bit different to how things are done at the moment. And, and what was done in the past. So mm. what was done in the past is people, when they developed their, their PDK, they kept it to themselves. So it wasn't mm. open to a lot of other companies. So the only way you could get access was to either was through acquisition or by partnership. Mm. And in certain cases, people held back the real secret source. And as a result of that, Silicon Photonics has sometimes got not a good, good press. Our intent is as soon as we get it, we put it and have verified it, we put it into the PDK. And in certain circumstances and with certain customers, we'll actually grant them early access so they can mm. start designing with the components while we are validating the design and the processes needed to do that. And we are finding that that, that is pretty popular run among certain customers who have silicon pho photonics design expertise. Let's go to a little bit about what kind of success you've had so far. I mean, you're you're a young company. What have you What have you done so far? Um, so uh, last year we we announced the release of an eight by one hundred gigabit uh, PIC reference design. Uh, so and it's been fully validated and, and tested. And you can you can buy sample packs of those chips available. We're designing next generation uh, devices for the next uh, speed. 
uh, intercept, which would be around 1.6 terabits. Uh, we're testing uh, a CWDM 800 gigabit right now, and we hope to make some announcements later on this year of its availability. And uh, we're also, which is really interesting, it's not just in the communication space and the artificial intelligence space. We're seeing a broad range of market segments, which mm. actually helps us both from a business point of view, as well as developing more components rapidly for those sort of segments, which are very different from the communication segment. And what kind of segments might that be? Where else do you think um, uh, you're seeing traction or, or interest? Uh, we're definitely seeing it in the uh, LiDAR space, whether okay. or not it be for automotive or it is for machine vision, mm -hmm. um, which is definitely a space that is growing very rapidly. Obviously, for car, for safety and everything else like that, LiDAR is, is, is becoming a lot more, um, I would say, it's becoming a lot more, it's, it's, a, it's a requirement that you need to be able to detect objects at a longer mm -hmm. distance. And so the early days of the um, TOF architecture, you could get to a certain distance, but with um, the requirements now and, and, and making it a lot safer environment from uh, an automotive point of view, you are seeing this FMCW type of architecture coming out, which is what our technology really uh, lends itself to because the more channels you have, the better the pixel refresh rate. And then we're seeing other market segments as well, such as um, uh, sensing uh, in various uh, fields, as well as uh, healthcare and and also defense. Okay, I mean, uh, there are various companies already offering FMCW LiDAR solutions. And uh, and then all on the healthcare, I mean, you've got people who are doing the optical sort of um, uh, sensing here you know, for various parameters. Correct. So, yeah, do you see yourself sort of uh, targeting some of those markets then? Um, we've definitely got interest. And what we have to do is make sure that our PDK is updated so that any of the components that are required in those market segments, people will have access to. Uh, so that they can do their own designs and okay. then port it in and do it at scale. Well, Adam, thank you very much. No problem. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to my guests, Steve Statler from Willyot, Mike McCammon from the NFC Forum, and Adam Carter from OpenLight. That was Embedded Edge with Nitin, and I'm Nitin Dahad. Thanks for listening and see you next time.